Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a series called The Missionary God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 24, as Dr. Newfeld brings us the first message titled, The Creator's Plan. I was in a conversation the other day. It was a conversation I've had so many times before. The conversation went this way. I can't believe that all those people who didn't believe in Christ would go to hell. Now, of course, since the conversation happened just prior to the worship service in church on a Sunday morning, there was just a little time to actually talk about something that that requires a very long conversation. But of course, that's not the first time I've had that very same conversation. I've had it with many people. And of course, that question is a question that often shows up along with another question, the question of why it is that God can allow so much suffering in the world. Now, for the next two weeks, I want to talk about missions. Many of you know that the central mission of the church is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Jesus' command to his people. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That is the basis of all mission to the world. But back for a moment to the question of the fate of the unevangelized and the fate of those who have never heard of Jesus. See, I've noticed that in North America, this question is often an invitation to philosophical inquiry rather than a question that leads us to missions. See, we feel more comfortable talking than being compelled into doing. But I've also noticed something else. I've noticed that when it comes to missions, the discussion often begins with us, not with God. How can God allow us to be in such a predicament that we are suffering and spiritually lost and in need of a savior? Shouldn't God do something about us? How can God justify himself and his inactivity to us? And then out of that comes a number of other matters as they relate to missions. You know, missions can become an exercise in humanism rather than an exercise in theism. That is, when so many of us think about missions, we're man-centered and not centered on the glory of God. Missions becomes the plight to help people in their neediness rather than a glad proclamation of an altogether glorious God. Now, just in case you're thinking about writing me right now a note and wondering how it is that I can be so unconcerned with the crying needs of others, well, just hold your horses for a moment. See, I'm not saying that God is unconcerned with human needs, but I am saying that most of us start with a man-centered gospel rather than a God-centered gospel. It's a question of what's central to the concern of missions. Is the central concern of missions us? Or is it God? Now, in order to answer that, let me ask and answer a question that is even more important. If people are in a bad way, and if suffering is a part of the nature of this world, why is it that God decided to make the world in the first place? Whenever I hear someone answer a question by saying, well, God did it because he was looking for fellowship, he wanted relationship, I already know where that answer leads. See, that's the answer of someone who has a man-centered gospel and not a God-centered gospel. In this worldview, God is incomplete. He's, He's lonely. He's looking for a way to cure what ails him. 
and then we're the solution. God made us to fill the aching lack, the incompleteness in himself. We are the solution to God's loneliness. Now, just so you know, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has no lack. The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in history, while on his second missionary journey, stopped in the Greek city of Athens. You know, the city was filled with idols. Indeed, some of the ancients said that there were more idols in Athens than there were people. That may not be an exaggeration at all. And so Paul speaks to the Athenians about the one true God. And I'm quoting him here from Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, that's the opening statement to that city, and that could be the opening statement for the biblical impulse of missions. God made the world. Now, the Greek temples did not make God and house him. It's quite the opposite. God made the world. And furthermore, the God who made the world doesn't need anything. He's not a needy God at all. Well, Paul knew that because he knew the God who had revealed himself in Scripture. Psalm 50, for instance, is a very important psalm for, for that very reason. Israel, as you know from your own Bible study, was always being tempted by the idols of the nations around them. And even when they weren't making and worshiping idols, they were being influenced by, by the theology of idolatry from the nations around them. You see, for many of the nations around Israel, the gods needed to be served. And so the reason why the pagans sacrificed to their gods and their goddesses is because the deities were hungry, and this was food for the gods. Human beings were required to care for the needs of the gods. Now, with that in mind, listen to Asaph's word in Psalm 50. And as you listen, remember that Asaph is a worship leader in Israel. And as a good worship leader, he wants God's people to sing what's true about the one true living God and, and not to sing the, the silly things the nation's saying. So with that in mind, listen to what Asaph calls Israel to sing. I'm reading Psalm 50, 10 to 15. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now, the most life-transforming thing you can ever hear from that psalm is simply this. God doesn't need you. He's not pleased with you when you're doing things for him. Rather, he's pleased with you when you're going to him and asking him to do something for you. Don't feed me, says God, for there's nothing that you have that I need. Instead, call upon me in the day of trouble, for there are many things that you don't have. And these things come from me. And that, and that is, when you come asking things of me, that's when you honor me. Now, let's get back to Paul in the city of Athens. The city is filled with idols, and the citizens of Athens have been serving their idols for a long time now. And Paul, the missionary who knows the one true God of Israel, stands in the marketplace of Athens, and he's proclaiming the God who made the earth is not served by human hands. 
It's utterly revolutionary. God needs nothing from you. And as an aside, just so you understand this, Paul is not a missionary because God needs him to take the gospel to the world. Listen, God doesn't need Paul. Paul is not on missions because God has a need. A needy God is not a biblical motivation for missions. Now, before I go on, let me make sure that I answer the question of what the Bible means then when, for instance, in Psalm 100 verse 2, we're told to serve the Lord with gladness. So how do we serve the Lord? Well, the answer must be that we serve the Lord in the way that a patient serves his or her doctor. When we do what our heavenly physician tells us to do, we find that he's healing us of our diseases. We serve God not for God's sake, but for our sake. We need to serve for our own good. God is not benefited by anything that we do. And so Paul tells the Athenians that this is the nature of the one true God. And when he tells the Athenians that God has given them life and breath and everything else, he's telling them that God is not dependent on them, but the matter is the other way around. We're dependent on God. And Paul premised all this revolutionary thinking on one statement. He began with the words, the God who made the world and everything in it. That is to say, if you're going to think rightly about God, you have to start there. And it's this statement, the God who made the world from which everything flows. Let me draw your attention to an important statement found in Exodus chapter 9. Moses has just announced a series of plagues on Egypt, and those plagues are devastating the land. Now a hailstorm has devastated Egypt's agriculture and Pharaoh's desperate. And so Pharaoh asks Moses to ask God to stop the hail. And Exodus 9.29 says, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. See, that phrase, the earth is the Lord's, is the foundation, the starting place of all missions. God's ownership of the earth is so complete that he also owns the souls of every single human being. Good news is meant to travel. Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to every generation on a global scale. When we partner in the Great Commission, we magnify the numbers of hearts receiving God's saving truth. We all need these truths. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is thrilled to share our latest resource free for the month of February called Companions for the Gospel. This full-color laminated reference guide traces Paul's missionary journey in Acts and highlights those who partnered with him along the way in spreading the good news of our Savior. Not only is this a great teaching tool, but it's also an invitation to participate as companions for the gospel in our own time and place. To request your free copy today or, or to give a fiscal gift to support Back to the Bible Canada nationally or globally, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I began by saying that missions, when it's truly understood, is the glorious news of the Creator who has no needs and who has never relinquished His ownership of all things. 
The Creator owns the world. He owns nature. He, he owns the nations. He owns every single human being. Ah, but there we must give ourselves to a key question. Why does the Creator who has no needs create at all? And we need to add to that question a second one. What is the Creator's plan for His creation? Understand the answers to those two questions and you'll understand the very nature of Christian missions. So let's start with the first of the two questions. Why does the Creator make the free decision to create? And please notice that I deliberately use the adverb free to describe the kind of decision the Creator made. See, I use the adverb free because I've already made the point that the Creator did not need to create. He did not create to solve a problem. Nothing but nothing compelled him to create. Now, let me give you a practical application of that principle. John 17 contains what has often been called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is going to the cross and secure for the Father the redemption of a great group of people. They will be saved by the blood of his cross. And so before this, the greatest moment in human history, Jesus is in prayer. And John, who was there, has given us the contents of that prayer. And I'm reading part of that from John 17, 4 and 5. There Jesus prays, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, some of you remember that years ago, we used to sing a chorus in church, and one line of that chorus, speaking of the cross, said, Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, to be clear, most of that chorus is profoundly biblical, but that line is decidedly not. On the cross, Jesus did not think of us above all. You see, many of us can't help ourselves. We've so bought into the man-centered gospel. Of course Jesus went to the cross to provide redemption for sinners, but according to John 17, verse 5, Jesus was thinking of the glory of the Father above all. And indeed, he was not thinking of a glory that was enhanced by the creation or the glory that was enhanced by the cross. He was thinking of a glory that had always been there long before the creation ever existed. See, God is always the great and glorious God. He, he doesn't create to somehow enhance either his joy or his glory. How could he enhance that which was always perfect? Creation and the salvation of the lost brings God no greater glory. His glory is always complete. So why does God create it all? Well, let's check out a little verse that many of us have already quoted before. It's found in Isaiah 43, verse 7. Isaiah 43 is really a precious chapter in our Bible. You know, in that chapter, God is telling Israel just how precious they are to him. God loves his people and tells them not to be afraid, for he has redeemed them. When they pass through the waters, they are not to be overwhelmed. And when they walk through the fire, they will not be burned. In spite of their many sins, God not only redeems them, but assures his people how much he loves them. And even when they go into exile for their sins, God will call them out of exile, and he will gather them back to himself. That's how much God loves his people. 
And with that promise, and even though they are exiled to the ends of the earth, we need to hear now Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, now notice, God has created for his glory. And in context of this verse, God has redeemed his people for his glory. It was God's interest in his glory that caused him to redeem his people. But listen, if if creation and redemption doesn't add any glory to God, if God was always perfectly glorious, so how do we understand what this means? I mean, why would God do something for his glory when what he does doesn't ever make him more glorious? I mean, how do we get to that question? Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, Paul speaks about the eternal wisdom of God in which he, in the fullness of time, expressed his eternal purpose. You know, that's to say, long before the world was created, God had already planned for a way to express his glory. Notice I didn't say to enhance his glory. No, no, that was already perfect. Rather, God had a plan to express his glory. Now, when we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of God's perfection, of his attributes, of of the beauty of his being. See, God, if you will, is so wondrously beautiful in his perfections that he decided to express these perfections. See, kind of like an artist who would express inner beauty in a painting. And in his eternal wisdom, God decided to express his glory in the creation. See, the creation is God's painting expressing his perfection. And so the creation, and please remember, that includes everything in the universe, to the creation of the earth, to the creation of humanity. All of this is an expression of the glory of God. It expresses God's joy in being God. It expresses his boundless power and wisdom. It expresses his goodness, his grace, his love. Now hold on to that and add to that an equally profound thought. In his wisdom, God decided that creation would progressively unfold. God intended that the creation would only gradually reveal his glory, not all at once, but slowly unfolding. And so Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so amazingly, in one simple line, the Bible tells us that God has now created the entire physical universe. God created the cosmos. And then Genesis 1 verse 2, the focus is shifted from the creation of the cosmos to a very particular planet, the earth. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's to say, the earth was a howling wasteland. It was unfit for life. And furthermore, no light from the cosmos could penetrate to the earth. Now we might wonder why that's so. I mean, couldn't God simply have spoken a word and everything was perfect from the start? Yeah, God could have done that, but in his eternal wisdom, that was not his plan. Listen to two separate Bible passages. The first is Numbers 14, 21. God is speaking and he says, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Notice that this will happen. It's not there today, but the earth was created for this to happen progressively. 
Now, that thought is repeated in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so this is central to all of missions. God, who has no needs but is altogether glorious, decided to express his pleasure in his own glory. He did so in the creation of a physical universe. But in his boundless wisdom, he knew that the best way to do that was to progressively fill the earth with his glory, step by step. And so this is both the story of missions and the story of the Bible. God creates a world, and then the crown of his creation, the first human pair made in his image, rebel against their creator. But God already foresaw this, for he had already decided in advance to create a world that would require a cross at the center. And then in the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. And when Paul speaks of this, he says, and I'm quoting here from Romans 3, verse 26, that the sending of his son to die on the cross was to showcase his righteousness or his glory. The cross would be the very reason for creation itself, because in the cross, God would give the supreme illustration of of just how glorious he is. Nothing showcases the beauty and the excellence of God like the cross. For it is in the cross that God showcases both his righteousness, that is, how he feels about sin, but it also showcases his mercy. That is, it expresses God's willingness to redeem and save his own. The cross is about the glory of God, and that's what missions is all about. Missions is about the Creator's plan to fill the earth with his glory. John, you know, there's a line that we cross, and I think we see that in organizations, unfortunately, that for some reason sacrifice the gospel because they are so desirous to meet the need. Yeah, I know. Whenever, um, you know, we we think that missions is feeding the poor and, uh, and, and educating people, you know, all those things that are good and laudable, and however, we're not compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that doesn't lead the way, uh, we're no longer on mission. We're, we're not a part of the Creator's plan. That's the, the terrible news. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Missionary God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Focus Month. Over the last number of years, God has graciously presented opportunities for this ministry to network with global partners that share our values and intent. Currently, our partnerships extend to the United Kingdom, Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean. New Bible teaching tools, devotionals, and booklets are being translated now into 14 languages and growing and we continue to work with international partners to train pastoral leaders to effectively teach the Bible. We're so grateful and privileged God has opened doors for international ministry partnerships. Your financial support makes it all possible. To find out how you can send pastors to the Bible teaching conferences or participate in our $25,000 international match campaign, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.